Tonight we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 20. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. He answered them, I also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Good evening. Welcome to Regeneration. If you're new here, we go through the Bible just chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and here we are in Luke chapter 20. Uh, Let us pray. God, thank you for your word. We cherish it and we love it. We pray, Holy Spirit, for you to minister to us as we go through your scriptures. Help us to have open minds and open hearts to receive what you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Ever since uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, uh, Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. And the reason for that is he's going there to fulfill his destiny. And in our text this evening, Jesus is in Jerusalem, and later on he will endure the flogging and the spitting and, and the mocking and eventually die. And then three days later, raised from the dead. And the Bible tells us after his ascension to heaven that he would return. He will return for us as king and no one knows the hour except the Father. Now in chapter 20, Jesus taught the people in the temple. And what the religious leaders tried to do was prevent him from entering into Jerusalem. They even tried to plot to kill him. But the crowds were so enamored, so adoring of Jesus that there was no way for them to get to him to kill him. Let's get a context. Back in Luke chapter 19, just a couple verses, starting in verse 47. He was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, Jesus was preaching the gospel. Now that's why he was sent. You look back to Luke chapter 4, verse 43, it reads, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. I think religious people lose sight of this, because the Pharisees and the scribes did. They asked Jesus in Luke chapter 5, verse 30, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I also think that the church loses sight of this mission and this vision as well. We're too content with keeping this good news to ourselves, but but that's not God's purpose in giving us the gospel as was revealed to us in the parable of the Minas. Our purpose is to preach the good news of the kingdom of God. How often do we receive the good news of the kingdom of God simply as news. Not good news, just kind of news. And we forget how it was in our life before the gospel changed our lives. We forget how it was when the good news first touched us and when people ask us, how are you? The typical response is good. At least that's me. 
Right? Even if life is not good, I, I tend to say, good. And, I, and I've been catching myself these past couple weeks because it's been a little bit more evident in me because, as I shared with you guys last week, a really close friend of mine, Petey, he died a couple of weeks ago, and I'm not really doing good. Right? I, I'm not doing good. So there were times when people asked, how are you doing? And I said, good. And I was like, oh, no, no, that's not true. And I had to backtrack and I had to tell them, you know, actually, I'm really sad. I'm mourning a loss of a really good friend. And there's this physical ache that I'm experiencing in my heart because I miss him. I, I miss my brother. And so we're so conditioned to answer good when people ask how we're doing or, or how things are going in our job or our marriage or, or in our faith. If things are really good and you answer good, that's great. And I'm so happy for you. But how often is it really not good? And so we, I think we've conditioned ourselves to believe that all is so good that even the good news of the gospel doesn't go any further than just our eardrum and it just bounces off with any type of effect or influence into our lives. That it's just one of those good. It's just good news. It's good. It's written in Luke chapter 8 verse 1 that Jesus went on through cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And who was this good news for? Sinners. Sinners. People who knew that they were sick and in need of a physician. So in this case, prostitutes and tax collectors and those who are looked upon as the lowest of the lows. And who are they in our day today? Who are they for you? For many people in Oakland, it's the 1%. But it's whoever that is, whoever's the most despised person in your mind. And the good news is for sinners. And really all you and I have to do is just kind of look in the mirror. And there we are. And who complained about Jesus reaching out to the outcasts of society? The religious leaders. You would think they would be the most open to Jesus' words, but they were the most opposed. And the ones you would think want nothing to do with Jesus are the ones that actually soaked it all in. So what did Jesus teach the people in the temple as he preached the gospel? The scriptures. Perhaps the same things that he taught his disciples after his resurrection in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He taught them the scriptures and, and what they meant, starting from Moses through the prophets about himself. And so when he got to the book of Isaiah, he talked about the suffering servant himself. When he got to Zechariah, he was speaking about riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey, and he pointed to Messiah himself, and he taught them about the kingdom of God. That's what we do here at church. We, we teach the Bible. We teach the scriptures. We point to Jesus. And so what do we do in our small group studies? I really hope that we're pointing people to Jesus. What do we do as we as a church serve our community? I hope we're pointing people to Jesus. I hope that in everything that we do as a church and individual Christians, that we're pointing people to Jesus. And maybe there are people here for other reasons. Maybe you're here to find out how to be a better financial steward of your resources. And the thing is, is I can actually help you with that. I can do that. And there are some other people here within our church who can do that. But the thing is, is that there are many non-Christians who can help you do that? 
You don't need me to help you do that. You don't need a Christian to help you do that. There are many people that don't know Jesus who are not followers of Christ who can help you do that. Maybe you're here to find out how to be a better husband or wife. I can do that too. I'm better at the husband part. But I can do the wife thing too. Because it's not me and not that I have experience, but I just kind of go biblically. Right? The, the, the Bible is kind of where that authority is. And if I'm no help to you, John Towson's coming on Saturday and you can go see him. So, you know, you can just go there. But it's not really about me or John Townsend. There are a ton of other people who do not follow Jesus Christ who can help you. There are a ton of MFTs out there. They can help you in your marriage. So your, your marriage relationship or your dating relationship or whatever that you're here for is not the main thing as a follower of Jesus Christ. You're like, what? What do you mean? Family. Following Christ gives us a better foundation to have great relationships, to be great financial stewards of our finances. But that's not the main thing. Those are byproducts of being a disciple of Jesus. Ever think about Jesus never being married or not very wealthy? Right? Do, do we find Jesus giving financial seminars or marriage seminars? And I'm not saying that those are bad things or that they're not valuable. Because I'm going this Saturday. So I believe in, in working on my marriage and, and so does my wife and investing into that. And that's important to us. But that's not Jesus' main thing. His main thing is teaching the Bible biblically and preaching the gospel as the Holy Spirit leads him. Jesus said in Mark chapter 16, verse 15, Go into all the world, proclaim the gospel to the whole of creation. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So back to chapter 20 and verse 1. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up. And you notice that there was this group of men who came up to confront Jesus. Chief priests, scribes, and elders. And the way that Luke wrote this suggests that this is an official group. This is an official group representing the Sanhedrin, the ruling council of the Jews, and they are coming up to confront Jesus. Well, who were these guys? The chief priests were comprised of the ruling high priests, the former high priests, and other high priests or, or other priests that are of high rank who were responsible for the care and the operation of the temple and its religious services. The scribes, they were charged with being teachers of the law, figuring out what the scriptures meant. The elders were these influential representatives of the community. These, these guys were the people who, who brought news forward to their community and shared with the, the general Jewish public about what was going on. They tended to come from reputable families, influential families, so they had some clout within their community. So this group of chief priests and, and elders and scribes, they were the people that came to confront Jesus about what's going on. Verse 2. And said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things. Who it is that gave you this authority? Now what are these things in verse 2? Well, let's look back to what Jesus did. He came riding into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey. 
So these chief priests, scribes, elders, these are, these are no dummies. They know the scriptures. They know Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So these guys are upset that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the foal of a donkey and the people ushered him into the city like a king as prophesied in Zechariah 9.9. And he's saying, tell us by what authority you did that. Who gave you that authority to pretend to be king and get on a donkey and ride into our city? Who do you think you are? Do you think that you are actually Zechariah's prophecy? You think that? Says who? Because we're the chief priests. We are the elders and we are the scribes. You're not it. And it wasn't just riding on the foal of the donkey because these things is plural. Tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. So what else is there? Well, when he got to the temple, Jesus cleaned house. Right? Luke chapter 19, verses 45 through 46. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Who do you think you are to come in here and ruin our trade? Our commerce that we've created for our temple? Who gave you the authority to do that? We're the chief priests. We rule this. We have dominion over this. These scribes read nothing about you coming in here. You're not an elder. You have no influence in this. Who gave you this authority? Who who are you? And then lastly, Jesus' teaching. Luke chapter 19, verse 47. And He was teaching daily in the temple. They were offended by Jesus' teaching because it challenged their authority. It was different from their teaching because it pointed people to the kingdom of God, to the good news. It wasn't just simply aimed at changing their behavior or what they were doing. It wasn't some behavior modification course. It was aimed at changing their heart. And not just to know about the kingdom of God and to realize that it's in the scriptures and to know about the good news, but to be citizens of the kingdom of God and to proclaim the good news because it transformed their lives and it changed them so they had to. It wasn't about acting religious. It's about feeling at home in how we really are as the children of the kingdom. And they're thinking, Jesus, who do you think you are? Who gave you the authority to challenge our traditional teachings as chief priests and scribes and elders and the way that we've been teaching this? Because none of us did it. This group here that is confronting you, this Sanhedrin, and if we didn't do it, who did? Because we rule this place. This is our house. See, a lot of these teachings that these guys were giving to their audience... These were traditional lessons that were passed on to them from another rabbi. So they would just kind of regurgitate these lessons and give them, and it was exclusive to the people who were already Jews. And so Jesus teaching Gentiles, or saying that you're saved from your sins, to Gentiles, unclean people, they didn't know how to respond to this. They didn't know that Jesus was 
given this authority to go out and save the lost, sick people who needed him. And these Jews felt that, you know, we're in. I, we were born into it. So, so this good news, that's for us. Why in the world are you sharing that with unclean people? Gentiles. And so, we're the chief priests, we're the scribes, and we're the elders. And you're going off and just teaching stuff. Who gave you that authority? Who said you can do that? And it's a lot like churches today. Where people go because, you know, it's how you grew up. It's part of your identity. It's part of your tradition. It's part of your culture. You've just always been in church or you were born into it. And, and, and you've heard the same things over and over again. Every Christmas, every Easter, every Palm Sunday, uh, Mother's Day. I don't know what other messages you guys get every year. I don't think you guys get that here. I did Palm Sunday last week. But the thing is, when you go through the Scriptures, is the Holy Spirit stirring things up in you when you're studying the Scriptures? When you're hearing them, even if it's the same thing, you know that the Christmas, Jesus is born. Is it stirring something up? Is, is something happening inside of you? You go to some churches today, and it's hard to find the challenge. The challenge to respond to the Gospel or to the Kingdom of God, because the focus is more on, how do I be a better person? How do I take a stand against social injustice? How do I get involved in community? And it's all these important issues, all these important issues of humanity. But are those the primary things for us to aim for as Christians? Is that our primary aim? It's not. It's not. That's not what sets us apart. What sets us apart is the gospel. The kingdom of God is what sets us apart. All those other noble, humanitarian, philanthropic things, worthy, important causes, secondary. Tertiary. We as a church are to focus on the gospel. That's what sets us apart. And what do we find in verse 48? All the people were hanging on his words. Jesus wasn't giving the the teachings passed on from another rabbi just to regurgitate and to give religious tradition. He taught with authority because he taught from the Scriptures, not from the words of of some guy who thinks that, oh, this is a better way to do things. He taught from the Word of God, and he was Spirit-filled and Spirit-led. And I'm not talking about being a dynamic preacher, teacher, or a charismatic leader. That's not what I'm talking about, even though I believe Jesus to be the greatest teacher and greatest leader of all time. I'm talking about faithful and true teaching according to the Word of God, leading them through the Word of God, the entire counsel of the Word of God. It's not about being dynamic. It's not about being charismatic because the Holy Spirit is within us and we have authority based on the Word of God to go out and preach His gospel of the kingdom of God. I visited a a mentor of mine this past weekend, Dr. Beloyan, who some of you know from the Israel trip, and he's also taught here before. Every year, this family camp up in the Santa Cruz Mountains invites him to to teach at this camp. And so he's been doing it for years. And he shared with me a story about a missionary that he co-taught with at this family retreat. And so one year, he was teaching with this missionary, and he was telling me, Albert, i got to tell you, this guy was the, the worst speaker of all time that I've ever heard. Of all time. And he's 65, so he's been doing ministry for over three decades. And he was just telling me, you know, this guy, he was, he was monotone, never looked up from his notes, just read from them. 
and it sounded like he was reading from it, and he spoke for a long time. And then he gave an invitation to accept Jesus. Fifty people came up from a Christian camp. It's not a crusade where you're expecting not... This is a Christian camp. And there's only 300 people. Is that nuts? It's all about the Holy Spirit. It is not about the speaker. He simply faithfully presented the gospel in his monotone, boring, looking down in his notes way. And the authority came from what he was preaching. Isn't that great? Isn't that such a relief to know that it's not about you and your speaking skills and your public presentation and all this stuff? Some of it is you, though. Some of it is you. You have to open your mouth. You have to be faithful in opening your mouth and letting a word come out. You have to be faithful in that. To share the gospel. But, you know, the Holy Spirit is there along the way, the whole time. And the conversion is up to Him. Verse 2, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. These guys aren't there to have a nice discussion with Jesus. That's not why they're there. They went to interrogate. They went to find fault with him because they were jealous that he was gaining such influence. They were angry because they stopped that corrupt money from going into their pockets. They were envious of how his teaching was just impacting people. And Jesus pulled away from their religious traditional ways and and he disrupted how the religious establishment was taking advantage of those people. And you know something else? Oppressive people do not like it when you take away their influence, their power or their money they don't like it at all you don't believe me try taking a prostitute off of international what will happen you get shot you will don't do that stuff you know i've had some teams saying like oh you know we're going to come here and we want to hand roses to the prostitutes and we want to bring them out you're stupid don't do it Go talk to FBI, go talk to OPD, go talk to the people that realize what they're doing, go talk to Missy, go talk to all these folks before you go being like Superman, because you're going to get hurt. Because oppressive people don't like when you take away their power and their money and their influence. They don't care who you are. So this is the same with these guys. They don't like Jesus taking away what they have a really strong grip on. We have these people paying us a lot of money. Why are you taking our money away? We have these people in the grip of our hands. We give them the same regurgitated teachings every year. It's Passover. We give the same thing. Exodus. Oh, then you paint the blood in there and all this other stuff. We give the same teachings every year. Don't mess with us. We got this whole operation down. Who are you to come in here and do all this stuff? And Jesus challenged their authority and they didn't like it. Some people have a problem with authority. And for some reason, they feel entitled to act the way they act. The chief priest felt entitled to act the way they act because it was a birthright to be a chief priest. You can't be a chief priest if you're not born into it. So we're special, born into this stuff. I am entitled to take care of this temple and all the operations inside. This is my place. The scribes felt entitled because I got my several PhDs. I've been going to school all my life. I've been going through this advanced education. I have all this schooling. I know everything about the scriptures. Yeah, try me. Try me. And so they feel entitled. The elders felt entitled because they came through these 
Reputable families. They had such a societal influence for, for generations. You know, my great-great-grandfather was a great contributor to this temple and served here and, and was a council member and did all this stuff and it's passed on and, and we give so much money to the temple works and benevolence and all this stuff and see our name written on that pillar and all this stuff. And so they feel entitled. So they all had their reasons for entitlement and, and they were all wondering, where does this kid who came out of wedlock. Get the nerve to come talk to us. Because we got the pedigree. I was born through the chief priest line. I was born through the elder line. I am well educated. He was educated in Galilee. He was educated in a school on the peninsula, not Berkeley. And he was like, hey, we, we, scribes, we're educated. We were educated here in Jerusalem. Who's this clown? You know who his mom is? She's a floozy. I don't know who her dad Who's your dad? You don't even know, do you, boy? Joseph, Joseph, we know Joseph's not your dad. All of us know Joseph's not your dad. Joseph's just this poor carpenter. He's not your dad, though. Who knows who your dad is? So where do you get the nerve to come here and do all these things? Who are you? You're nobody. You are a loser. You are coming, what authority? Who are you? Show us your credentials, Galilee boy. Prove yourself. What arrogance to speak to God that way. Yet people are doing that today. Questioning the authority of the word of God. Questioning Jesus. Who is Jesus to tell me how to live my life? Who is Jesus to tell me what to do? What authority does he have to instruct me on my life? Maybe because he created you? And it's the same arrogance, it's the same pride preventing many from from getting off their high horse, to, to get down low, to recognize that God actually came down to our level so that we could understand love. Because how do children understand love? Do they understand it by, hey, I love you? No, you get down on their level, right? You... When you speak to them, you get down on their level and you speak to them like this. You don't lord over them like that. And that's what Jesus did. That's what God did. He came down from heaven and He's going to be carrying us back up. And He comes to our level. And so what arrogance we have to question, Jesus, who are you? You're, You're nobody. He died for you. He died for you so you wouldn't have to deal with your sins in such a way that you would be looked upon as unclean. He wiped it clean before a holy God. But these religious leaders, like others who presently reject Jesus, they think they know best. But do we really know best? Because if you think that you know best, you, A, must not be married, or B, must not have children. Because once you are married or you have children, you eat that big slice of humble pie very fast. Like, you, you know, you recognize pretty quickly that your best is junk. Like, it's just... It... We were driving to Santa Cruz Mountains, right, to visit my mentor. And so, me, I know what's best. The shortest and the fastest way is best. Shortest, fastest way. Bear Creek Road. Tons of switchbacks. Going up and down. And I know this, because I see it on the map. Oh, my car sickness. Kids, Dramamine. 
So I brought all this stuff for motion sickness. I got the little thing, you know, for the wrist thing and, and ginger gum and, and uh, ginger ale and all this kind of stuff. And I'm driving and my kids knocked out. You know, drive with me, right? I was like, yes. Driving. I'm cool. I'm so sick. I'm so nauseous and I have a headache. The same thing for my wife. She's so sick. And I'm like, honey, do you need me to pull over? She was like, no, just go, 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 quick. She was such a good sport because of my best. It was my best. So on the way back, I took a much longer route, going all the way around, much flatter, not curvy, not windy. Took longer, but we got home, and I felt fine. That's just a minor thing. Yet we think that we know what's best, best man I, I don't i can't even tell you what the best road is from point a to point b and i don't think you're all that different than me and so the road to eternity fortunately is not dictated by us it's given to us god dictated that to us the word reveals that to us the authority is god it's not us so when jesus said in luke chapter 14 verse 6 i am the way and the truth and the life no one comes to the father but by me that's the authority of god that's the word of god and for those who believe that we need to be more open-minded to other world views because there's more than one way to god i totally agree I totally agree that Christianity is not the only way to God. I agree. All roads lead to God. I agree. Not all roads lead to everlasting life with God, though. Everyone will go to God. But if you're not with Jesus, you're going to go to him in judgment. You're going to see him in judgment. And that's the last time you'll ever see him. Then it's hell. You only get everlasting life with Jesus as your advocate, as your Savior. All other ways lead to hell, according to John chapter 14, verse 6. Now, hell, don't get this picture of, oh, there's a guy jumping up and down with a pointy tail and horns and a pitchfork and red and flames all behind him. Hell is essentially the absence of God. That's what it is. It's the absence of God. So you see him, you get judged, and that's it. There is no more. And if you're truly open-minded, you also have to consider John chapter 14, verse 6, which Jesus makes himself to be exclusive. And so intellectually, you cannot be tolerant of John chapter 14, verse 6, because he is exclusive to that. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but all of us are going to die. We all die. And death is where we are all heading, whether we like it or not. Anyone here know anyone who hasn't died? I know two. I don't know them personally. Haven't met them yet. They're in Genesis chapter 5, Enoch, and 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah. That is it. All the billions of billions of billions upon billions of people have died. So, most likely you and I are going to die. So don't we all have to navigate through life to the finish line of death unless Jesus comes back before we physically die? Right? That, that's, that's how it is. Death is definite. But what happens after death isn't an intellectual problem. Because if it's simply an intellectual problem, 
I'm going to give you a project. Go disprove the resurrection of Jesus. And if you do, Christianity's done. You debunk the whole faith. Prove that one thing wrong, and Christianity's done. But if you cannot disprove it, you have to respond. You have to acknowledge that you cannot disprove it. And you have to respond. See, the problem doesn't lie in the intellect. The problem lies in the will. It's in accepting or rejecting. It's in being humble or prideful. It's in your attitude of knowing God or thinking that you know best. It's believing truth or it's believing lies. It's a matter of the will. It is not intellect. Isn't it ironic that the most religious of people are those who are most opposed to God? Most opposed to the gospel? Could it be that we have the same problem today? Because how else can we explain the lack of authority the church has today? Could it be that there are too many in the church who teach about the Bible, but they don't teach the Bible? Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. How are we using the word of God? Is it dead and inactive, duller than a butter knife, soothing to the unity of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and confusing the thoughts and intentions of the heart? Because I think that's where a lot of the churches are today because they've just messed with the Word of God and not teaching it. They've made it a spineless religion without authority, and there are places of worship that claim to be Christian, but the authority of Jesus and the authority of the Word of God are lumped in with everything else. Everything else is equal footing. True Christianity calls for us to submit and obediently follow with our wills, hearts, and minds that God has revealed Himself through the Bible and it possesses authority. That the Bible is not a book of personal insights and opinions of authors that were living long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Right? And thinking that, oh, you know, their writings, you know, those are subject to fallibility. And you know what? Those are irrelevant because, you know, now we're, we're in modernity and that was back then. Their writings are not to be redefined because their writings are timeless. It's not a matter of how long ago something was written or how culture has changed because the Bible is not based on the author's insights or opinions of that time. The scriptures are God breathed. And God doesn't change. We seek understanding of what God has revealed to us. We believe them. We apply them. But we don't manipulate them to fit our beliefs that are contrary to the Bible. See, there's a big difference in looking at the Bible as this deep, religious, insightful book. And the Bible as the revelation of God. There's a huge difference there. Does the Bible direct our lives? Or do we read the Bible in attempts to explain away our own personal beliefs? What's the church? Are we just a bunch of religious people who who like to pool our resources together and our ideas and our experiences? We like to be together for a set period of time once or twice a week. How is that any different from a fight club? How is that any different? 
or a cycling club or a lion's club or whatever. You know, fight clubs, you know what they do? They take donations if someone is hurt within their little group there. They have a benevolence fund when somebody's hospitalized and say, oh, you know, so-and-so broke his arm. Oh, sorry about that, man. I didn't mean to do that. But here, can we have this benevolence fund and we'll give it to them? How is that any different from a church? We have benevolence funds too. We have membership too. We get together once a week too. How are we any different? If church is just a place where we come together because we, we have a common belief and we have, and we have resources that we want to pull together to, to do things, you know, that can be done in so many other places. It doesn't have to be church. The church is for the called of God. It's built upon by the prophets and the apostles. There's a huge difference between Jesus as a brilliant religious guide and Jesus as God. And for those who are identifying themselves as Christians, you recognize Jesus as God. Otherwise, that's not Christian. That is not Christian. That's something else. But it's not Christian. There's a huge difference between looking at sin as this lifelong flaw in our moral nature and sin as a violation of God's moral law. It's a huge difference. How we look at sin determines our eternal destiny, yet how many people compromise with what sin is? The confusion of the world is not what's scary to me. The confusion and the compromise within the church is what is scary to me. The Bible instructs us on what the church really is. What sin really is. Who Jesus really is. What the cross really is. Is the cross just a symbol of selflessness? Or is it an act of divine atonement, forgiveness, redemption, and reconciliation? What is Christianity? Is it just a bunch of ethics and and moral standards that we can apply to our life? Or is it a product of regeneration by which we become partakers of the divine nature of God? It's a huge difference. See, it's challenging to be a biblical Christian. And I think a good part of it comes from this issue of authority. Who are you to say? Who are you to think? Who are you to believe? And we get this bombarded to us from people who don't know Jesus. Who are you to think these things or say these things or do these things? Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who is it that gave you this authority? Who are you to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey like in Zechariah 9.9? Who are you to push trade out of the temple? Who are you to teach differently than us? You think Jesus was intimidated by these guys? Not at all. He was talking with these guys when he was 12. Right? Luke chapter 2, just holding his own, just chatting away, and they were amazed. Whoa, a 12-year-old. So he sees this entrapment coming his way, and so he turns the tables on him, verses 3 and 4. He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Brilliant. One question. Now Jesus wasn't dodging their question. He asked this question because the correct answer to his question was actually the answer to their question. So he's saying, you answer it. You know the answer. And so if they answered Jesus' question correctly, they'd answer their own question because John 
the Baptist's authority came from the same place that Jesus' authority came from. John was the forerunner to the Messiah, so it's rooted in the same source. So, go ahead, answer. Verses 5 through 7. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. These are really, really smart guys. They're the smartest guys there. And they knew this wasn't going to be an easy question to answer. So they got together so that they could come up with the best answer. And they explored all. Now, now if we say this, it's, this is going to happen. And if we say this, this is going to happen. Oh, we can't say that. We can't say that. What are we going to say? And they're discussing this stuff, right? And in the end, what do they do? They essentially, they play the agnostic card. I don't know. I don't know. We don't know. And there are so many people who play this card, isn't there? People who don't know Jesus, who instead of pursuing it further and doing more research and going a little bit further, just, I don't know. Who knows? We can't figure it out. We'll never know. And this includes Christians. Because Christians so often, they go away unchanged and uninfluenced and untouched and they just, I don't know. That thing, that's cool and all, but I really don't know the answer. But these guys actually knew. They knew. And I believe that many people who claim I don't know today, they actually know. Because we have enough evidence before us to trust in Jesus. We have enough. And I think that really, really smart people know that Jesus is the answer. But they also know that if they acknowledge that, it demands a response. Just like these guys. They knew the answer, but they knew that if they went there, then I guess you are Messiah. Right, So they don't want to admit that. They don't want to respond to that. So you can get away with, I don't know, right now. But there will come a time where that won't work anymore. When Jesus returns, those excuses don't work anymore. The problem is not the intellect. It's the will. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Because you know. You already know. If you can't recognize authority, there is no convincing you. Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, verse 31, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. There's no convincing you. It's the will. The opposition people had back then is the same opposition people have today, and it's found in one's will. They are not willing to bow before the kingship of Jesus, just like some today. There are people who pretend to want to know about God, and so they ask all sorts of questions. Oh, what about Noah and the ark, and uh, Jonah and the fish, and, and uh, this uh, trumpets and the walls coming down, and all this kind of stuff? If you're answering these types of questions for a skeptic, I just encourage you to be prayerful about it. Be prayerful about it. Because if it's investigative and if they are sincerely seeking understanding, that's great. Answer them. Give them all the answers. But if they're just doing it to be antagonistic and just to be in opposition to you, do something more productive with your life. Just move on. You only have a limited time on this earth. Why are you going to waste it like that? Be with people that you love, who love you, and then sleep well. Right? I've, I've, had, I've had way too many discussions, way too many, that have led nowhere. 
Nowhere. It wasn't for investigation. It wasn't, it wasn't to find something. It, it was to be antagonistic. To be in opposition. And it's a waste of my life. It's just a waste. I'd rather hang out with my kids and hang out with my wife than waste another second on arguing. I don't want to argue. I don't want to spend my time laying in bed thinking about, oh, well, I could have said that, and next time I'm going to say that, and, and all this kind of... I'd rather watch my daughter's fish just swim around in the tank than do that. That's so lame. I've never won an, an argument when somebody is convinced that that's that. That's that. You're not going to change their mind, and they're not going to change mine, because i got the Bible. You're not going to change it unless you change this. So there's no reason to argue. Just, all right, we agree to disagree and see you later. Remember in Luke chapter 9 when Jesus sent messengers ahead to the Samaritans? Verse 53. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. In other words, Jesus was saying, chill out. And they went on to another village. Notice what Jesus did? Jesus didn't go marching into that village of the Samaritans and say like, I am the Son of God. How dare you? It's the same reason why He won't argue with you. If you don't want it, you don't want it. He's not going to demand you. He's not going to do it. Because the issue is not an intellectual one. It's not about convincing. It's about your will. You want it? You don't? You don't. And I'm sure Jesus can out-argue you. I'm positive. God can out-argue you. That's not the issue. Sure, there are answers to your intellectual questions. There are. There are, there are many people smarter than me that have existed in this world, and they've written volumes upon volumes upon volumes of the issue that you are hung up with. Go read it. I can direct you that way. If you want to argue with me, I'm going to point you to a book. Because you can argue with the book all you want, but not with me. If you want to just have an open discussion, and you want to kind of have a dialogue, I'm open to that. But if you want to joust with me, there's a book. It's not an intellectual answer that you're looking for. And if it is, there's volumes upon volumes of information for you to look up. The ultimate reason for people not to come to faith is not that of the mind. It's the challenge to the will, which includes changes in morality. You have to change. You have to recognize, just like these chief priests, elders, and scribes, if they recognize and they answer the question, you are the Messiah. That's it. You have to change. You have to stop lining your pockets with corrupt money. You have to stop doing the whole traditional thing and be like, yeah, we actually have to teach the Bible. And you have to stop thinking like, ah, oh, we run this temple and we are in charge of it and everything that happens here, we are the custodians of God's temple and no, you may not do that and yes, you may do that and all this kind of stuff and you got to let all of that go. you got to let all that power go. you got to let all that money go. And the religious leaders in Jesus' day struggled with the same things we find people struggling with today. We don't want to relinquish power and influence and money. And it's the will that prevents people from coming forward. 
Inquiry, curiosity, questions, those are all really good, but you won't fully get it until you faithfully and humbly bow to Jesus as King, Lord, Teacher, and Savior. It's a total step of faith. Faith-seeking understanding. So will you bow your will to Jesus, or will you stand in arrogant, prideful defiance and default, I don't know, when you actually do? When you actually do know. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for loving us that you would come down and die for us. I pray, God, that there's anyone here that does not know you, Lord, that they would give their life over to you this evening in faith. God, for those who are struggling in their faith, Lord, that you would inspire them to take those right steps to walk towards you. May we as a church welcome them with open arms, full of grace and full of mercy, and welcoming them into family. Lord, make us more than just a club. Empower us to be your church, to preach the gospel, to teach your word, to transform people's lives through your Holy Spirit and through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.